The talk tonight is based on the Madhu Pindika Sutta from the Majjhimanikaya at Sutta 18, and I'd like to begin by reading the first few verses from the Sutta. Thus have I heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was living in the Sakyan country, a couple of Atu in Nagroda's park. Then, when it was morning, the Blessed One dressed, and taking his bowl and outer robe, went in to Kapalavatu for alms. When he had wandered for alms in Kapalavatu and had returned from his alms round, after his meal he went, he went to the great wood for the day's abiding, and entering the great wood, sat down at the root of a bilva sapling for the day's abiding. Dandapani the Sakyan, while walking and wandering for exercise, also went to the great wood, and when he had entered the great wood, he went to the bilva sapling where the Blessed One was and exchanged greetings with him. When this courteous and amiable talk was finished, he stood on one, at one side, leaning on his stick, and asked the Blessed One, What does the recluse assert? What does he proclaim? Now, just a bit of background, Dandapani the Sakyan. Uh, the name gives a little bit of a way, Dandapani. We have this term now, dandy, and apparently he was one. He was quite a young man, but he had the affectation of walking with a golden stick. And as you notice, he's just talked, uh, speaking about uh, leaning on his stick. So he has a little sense of arrogance around him. And just the question that he asks the Buddha has a little bit of that sense also. Um, doesn't seem to know who the Buddha is and said, you know, who are you? What, what do you teach? The Buddha replies, friend. I assert and proclaim such a teaching that one does not quarrel with anyone in the world, with its gods, its maras, and its brahmas, in this generation with its recluses and brahmins, its princes and its people. Such a teaching that perceptions no more underlie that brahman who abides detached from sensual pleasures without perplexity, shorn of worry, free from craving for any kind of being. When this was said, Dandapani the Sakyan shook his head, wagged his tongue, and raised his eyebrows until his forehead was puckered in three lines. <laughs> then he departed, leaning on his stick. Now, you might be feeling that at the moment, too. That is meant to convey perplexity and confusion. So he didn't quite understand what the Buddha said to him. But apparently there was a group of bhikkhus around at the time, and they didn't understand either. So they asked the Buddha later in the day, what was that teaching that you gave to Dandapani? And the, the Buddha said, bhikkhus, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a man, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, of the underlying tendency to aversion, of the underlying tendency to views, of the underlying tendency to doubt, of the underlying tendency to conceit, of the underlying tendency to desire for being, of the underlying tendency to ignorance, this is the end of resorting to rods and weapons, of quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here, these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. And we'll come back to that a little later on.
What I mainly want to talk about was what the Buddha opened that paragraph with, the perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation that beset a person. This concept is known in Buddhism as papancha. And I was just talking to Sylvia, and we both agreed we love that word. It's so onomatopoeic, papancha. It means that tendency of the mind to run on and on and on. Um, there, that it's that ongoing commentary that we have on life, you know, that narration that we have with us as a star. And I, when I was reflecting on this, don't they, the critics always say when you see a film that has a narrator that the, the, the producers have put that in because they're worried no one will understand the plot without someone explaining what's going on? Well, it's a bit like that for us. We sort of feel we have to explain everything and understand everything and put things in perspective and say, this I agree with, that I don't. You know, it's this ongoing commentary we have. And though the word itself is actually hard to translate, there's uh, some differences of opinion in the, in the commentaries on it, I'm sure you all know what I mean. The root meaning of the word is something like spreading out, expansion, diffusion, manifoldness. The definitions that I've read are things like complication or elaboration. But the one that I like best is mental proliferation. Just that sense of the mind taking something and expanding it to all corners of the universe. Now, this concept of papancha is an important and prominent theme in many of the suttas for many reasons. The Buddha really felt that understanding the nature of concepts, the nature of thought, was a really important part in the teaching of anatta, in coming to understand that teaching, that characteristic of no permanent abiding self, because we begin to see how with our thoughts we create that sense of self. And it's often a sense of self that's in relation to the world, at odds with the world, in contrast to the world and to others, a separate sense of self looking out at the world. Papancha is also seen as the cause of many difficult mind states and external problems and conflicts. It's the cause of things like attachment, views, pride, ignorance, an attachment to becoming, the bhava that we spoke about this morning. It's the source of quarreling and slander and gossip and lies. It's actually this considered in the text as a source of all forms of conflict. So it's really quite a potent force, one that we, uh, it's really helpful to begin to understand. I thought I'd start this teaching on Papancha by reading the opening of a story that many of you may recognize as I read it. We're going through. The commander's voice was like thin ice breaking. He wore his full dress uniform with a heavily braided white cap pulled down rakishly over one cold gray eye. We can't make it, sir. It's spoiling for a hurricane, if you ask me. I'm not asking you, Lieutenant Berg, said the commander. Throw on the power lights. Rev her up to 8,500. We're going through. The pounding of the cylinders increased. Tapakada, pakada, 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 pakada. <laughs> the commander stared at the ice forming on the pilot window. He walked over and twisted a row of complicated dials. Switch on number eight auxiliary, he shouted. Switch on number eight auxiliary, repeated Lieutenant Berg. Full strength in number three turret, shouted the commander. Full strength in number three turret. The crew, bending to their various tasks in the huge, hurtling, eight-engine Navy hydroplane, looked at each other and grinned. The old man will get us through, they said to one another. The old man ain't afraid of hell. 
Not so fast. You're driving too fast, said Mrs. Mitty. What are you driving so fast for? <laughs> hmm? Hmm, said Walter Mitty. He looked at his wife in the seat beside him with shocked astonishment. So I think you've all recognized who that is. Our dear friend Walter Mitty, James Thurber's wonderful creation. A creation of a person who lives constantly, most of his whole life, in some other self that's not actually who he is. And he does that because the self he perceives himself to be isn't good enough, isn't strong enough, isn't wise enough, isn't exciting enough. And poor Mrs. Mitty is always there to bring him back down to earth with a great big crash. In our meditation here, And in our daily life, we we try to stay present. That's our intention, to be with our current moment experience. But as you've no doubt noticed time and time again, the mind goes everywhere. Joseph and Sharon, uh, who many of you have probably sat with, often like to, to give this image of, imagine if all of our thoughts were made visible or audible in the meditation room. What a cacophony of, you know, chatter and greed and fear and wanting and, you know, fantasy, just on and on and on and on and on. And it's that quality of monkey mind, we've spoken about that before I did in The Hindrances, that restless mind that's never satisfied with the way things are and is always creating something new, wanting something different, never willing to be just present for what is. And this quality of thinking, this type of thought, is very different from types of thought such as investigation or or reflection, which are actually helpful uses of the mental faculty. But this string of chatter becomes so much a constant companion that it actually seems inevitable. It actually seems part of who we are. Fortunately, hopefully, a meditation practice shows us that it isn't. Shows us that there's actually another way of being with our experience, not so much at the mercy of this stream of thought. And even though it may not seem that way in certain moments, you are definitely quieter. Your mind is definitely quieter than when you began the retreat. And so we see that we are, there is a chance of not being so overwhelmed constantly by this papancha. So I'd like to go through a bit the process of papancha as it's defined in this sutta. Sutta 18. It's it's talked about in a number of suttas, as I said, and and there's a slightly different delineation of it in the different suttas, um, pointing to the same process but but with different emphases. I like this one because it's fairly simple. So the process is something like contact leads to feeling, leads to perception, leads to thinking, leads to the perceptions and categories of papancha. And you can see from that list that papancha is a development of thinking. And the sequence actually begins a bit like a part of that sequence of dependent origination that Guy spoke about a few nights ago, beginning with the fact that we have these six senses and that there's a sense impingement at one or more of the sense doors. So there's some contact there at the senses. And then we have a feeling about that in the sense of vedna or feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That feeling tone that's associated with every sense contact that we have, whether we're aware of it or not. 
from that Vedna, from that feeling tone, there arises a perception based on that. The perception is usually by its very nature conditioned and subjective. But we're most of the time not aware of that fact. Most of the time we see it as an automatic or a real or reality. So we have this perception about something. We then start to think about what we perceive. And once we start to think about what we perceive, the whole process begins. Begins that roller coaster of thoughts running off into likes, dislikes, memories, dreams, fantasies, projections, you know, opinions, um, whatever it might be. The key to that process, how we know that is happening, is usually we don't. We're lost. We're just completely caught up and identified in what's happening. And usually by this time, there's a strong sense of self-created. There's definitely an I who's doing, thinking, feeling, involved in this process. And here is where ending, nearing the end of the retreat, maybe you've noticed this process beginning just a little. You know, the, the thoughts about going home, you know, what that's going to be like. The, the pleasant things that might happen, you know, the, the thoughts of meeting Mary or hot tub or, you know, the unpleasant things like challenges of work or some task we have to undertake. Just starting to tumble into the future and create a self that's already there, that's doing this and saying that and fixing this and relaxing or being thankful that there aren't any bells that we have to obey anymore, whatever it might be. Guy and I are beginning to plan a trip to Australia, which is where I'm from. Uh, We just booked the tickets to go in March. We're actually going to be visiting my family and teaching a retreat, a 10-day retreat in Perth. And I've noticed a process that started to begin that once I reflected a bit on it, I realized it's happened every time I've started to plan a trip to Australia. I actually left Australia about 20 years ago. I didn't go back for about six years, but since then I've tried to go back every one or two years. And especially uh, as my parents got older, tried to go back more. And then when my mother died a couple of years ago, have been going back more frequently too to be with my father. And so, you know, we start, we book the tickets and I start to think about what will it be like when I'm in Australia? And the thoughts of my family home come up and all the people associated with that because I'm calling them, arranging the dates and what we'll do while we're there. And then the thoughts start to spread a little. So it goes out to what it was like when I was there. And so I think about that. And then the thought of a place I used to work. Oh, and then the thoughts dwell a little on that. And then a few people come to mind that I used to work with. And I start to think about them. And then I think, oh, what would it be like to see them again? You know, I haven't seen them in all these years. What would it be like? We had so much fun together when we worked together. What would that be like? And so I start to put the two of us together, or have many people, you know, what we were like then and then what we're like now, you know. We're older. We're, are we different? You know, what, what are they like? What am I like? Well, um, you know, am I wiser? Am I better than I was then? Um, you know, while I'm teaching meditation now, I must be wiser, mustn't I? You know, that must be something, doing something right. Uh, and then I think... Well, so I'm wise. maybe I'm wiser, you know, they'll think, oh, look, Sally, she's become so wise in all these years. <laughs> and then I think, well, what, you know, I'm imagining us together, and I think, well, what will I look like? You know, am I, you know, the same, worse than, better than I was 20 years ago? And 
have I put on any weight? Maybe I should go on a diet, you know. <laughs> and so this whole process starts, and I end up with this creation of a sense of self that's not only wiser than I actually am, but also thinner and possibly more beautiful. <laughs> And what's interesting is I've noticed, because I was giving, uh, planning on giving this talk and thinking about this topic, that it was starting to happen these couple of weeks ago. And what was interesting to reflect is this very train of thought has happened every time I've started to plan a trip to Australia. The thing is, it's been 20 years and I still haven't called these people. You know? <laughs> I've been back maybe 10 times. But it was only this time that I realized the strength of that wanting to create this identity about this person who doesn't actually even exist. I think Mark Twain was talking about Papancha when he said something like, my life has been one series, a series of one disaster after another, most of which never happened. Once we start to look at this process of papancha, we really begin to see how what we call perception colors our experience and feeds papancha, feeds this process. So perception is the naming, the singling out, the coming to a judgment about an aspect of our experience. And this, you know, if you're being very specific about it, that the vedna, the feeling tone, the experience that we're relating to, has some content to it, and we're, we're naming it, we're coming to some, having some ideas about it. And if perceptions do this, misperceptions do it even more. And that, that misperceptions happen so often in our relationships with people. You know, if you've ever gotten into a conflict, an argument with someone, and then actually, you know, tried to figure out what they were thinking, what they were feeling, most of the time we're off base, you know, you said this, no I didn't, but didn't you mean that? No, I didn't mean that at all. You know, when you try to come to some understanding, it's so difficult to really have an objective sense of what was going on. And there are so many perceptions of, so many examples of how perceptions lead to papancha in the media, in the news, on the television, in magazines. People actually get paid for papancha in this culture. <laughs> the media encourages it, fosters it. Things like editorial columns that fill up, you know, those couple of pages in a newspaper. And I always sort of look at them and pass by. And every now and th then I think, there must be something in there. You know, people are getting paid for this. It's taking up all this space. I should read them and know what, you know, the, the zeitgeist is, what's going on. And I'll read one or two and think, that was just a load of hot air. You know, it was just someone going from A to B and they're very close together. It wasn't like anything actually happened in the process. In media, again, reviews of movies. You know, have you ever read a review of a movie and gone to see it and said, did we see the same movie? You know, what's going on here? Or talk to a friend about a movie and had to say, you liked an Adam Sandler movie? <laughs> I actually have a friend I like a lot, and that, I had to say that to him. <laughs> you liked an Adam Sandler movie? And then we have the election. What a rich source of the papancha. And unfortunately, to let, just to let you know, it still is. But going back a, w a few weeks, did any of you watch the debates, the presidential debates? Wasn't it interesting to tune into the focus groups afterwards and just see how much by people bringing into that, that um, forum their own preconceptions, ideas, dislikes, likes, 
you know, Guy and I were watching them again saying, were we watching the same debate? You know, where someone would say, I thought so-and-so answered that question very well and seemed very well informed on that fact. And we're sort of going, I, you know, it was, it was just so blatant how much people's perceptions were coloring that information that they were um, processing from the debates. And we we can also see that we assume that what we see and experience has some objective reality. You know, it's true. It's the world. This is the way I see it. You know, it's out there. Don't we all agree? This is the way the world is. It's this shape, this form. Once we start to look a little more deeply into that preconception, we can see it's actually not true. Take some simple things like just stepping outside the door here in the daylight and looking out at this landscape. You know, we can probably all agree that it's beautiful. But each of us with our own um, conditioning will bring different perceptions to it. I happen to be a bird watcher. And so when I go out, I'm always tuned into those subtle movements that are birds flying or flitting through the branches, listening to the calls. If I see a bird, I instantly try to identify it. But if I was an artist, I might go out there and just see the play of light and color and see shape and form and not even really be aware that the birds were present. They wouldn't be part of my experience. The same thing if we're walking down a street in a town and we're hungry. All we see are the places that sell food, the restaurants, the places where this desire can be satisfied. Or if we want to go to the bathroom, you know, all we can tell is which is the largest store that might possibly have a bathroom that I can use. You know, we're just totally clued into what's meeting our needs in the moment, what our conditioning, what our perception is. We were recently in Italy, uh, Guy and I, and a couple of other friends, Guy and Carol Wilson taught a retreat. And following that, we spent um, a week or so in Tuscany. And one of the things we wanted to do was to do some walking in the countryside. And so we bought, bought a book called uh, Walking and Eating in Tuscany and Umbria. It's actually a very tempting title. And picked out what they, the people described as one of the most beautiful walks in the area. And this book in the preface uh, was written by an English couple. Described their many experiences doing walks in Italy using other guidebooks that were always you know, incorrect, led them astray, didn't have the right instructions, missed, on, missed out on the turns that they should have made, didn't have the right distances stated, and they unequivocally stated that they were not going to make those mistakes, you know, that they had thoroughly been through these directions for these walks, and, you know, they were standing by them as being as good as they could get. Well, <laughs> about 10 minutes into the walk, after some very detailed instructions that happened to be quite good and quite correct, they started to get, again, very detailed about what we should do, which turns we should take, what corners would be there, how far between this point and that point. And we were with book in hand going down into these little narrow lanes, and there was this broad path that just went on up the hill, but we kept saying, no, they said we should turn, and no, it should be, you know, half a, a few hundred yards to this tree and a point, some paint on the tree that means we go this way. And the four of us were going this way and that way, and I'll try this one and you try that one. <laughs> It actually turned out we, in the end, sort of basically threw the book away and just followed the main path. And they could have reduced about a page and a half of instructions to just stay on the main path. 
and we would have been fine. And it, it was quite funny because two or three times during the walk, we came across other groups of people, book in hand, often with sort of twigs in their hair from having tried to go down these very small little paths that they thought well, they were meant to be on, when in fact, the main path was all we needed to take care of. can see this quality of perception coloring experience when we read magazines, especially ones that are uh, uh, attuned to a particular group. The one that I thought of when I was thinking about this topic was Tricycle Magazine, which is a magazine for uh, supposedly all of the three main Buddhist traditions here in America. It's meant to be fairly evenly uh, representative, inclusive of the three traditions. And they're always having to print letters to the editor saying, you have too much Tibetan, you know, why don't you have more Zen? And then there'll be a letter saying, you have way too much Zen, can't you put some Theravadan stuff in? And it must be so frustrating to the editors, they're trying to be so even-handed, but depending on the filter that you bring to reading the magazine, you only see what's missing or what's, what's, what's suiting you. You don't see the whole breadth of the material. The Buddha actually made a very challenging statement about this, this concept of perception. He said, in whatever way you conceive of an object, it is other than that. Sort of takes the ground away from under us. Where do we go with that? In whatever way you conceive of an object, it is other than that. It really gives us, he really knew how much our conditioning filters our experience and how what we see is a product of that filtering and our conditioning. And it's actually interesting how much science has come to agree with him. You know, they know now in scientific experiments that merely by observing something, by setting up the experiment, that we're actually changing the thing that we're observing. So the first part of Papancha that I spoke about is almost automatic or impersonal. You know, as I said, there's the six sense bases, the six sense doors, and there's some impingement there. We can't control that, as we've tried to say to you. You know, whether it's a sound or a thought or an emotion, it just sort of seems to come. But from that sense contact comes Vedana, or the feeling tone. And even though it's quite automatic, there's a way, because it's conditioned, that it's getting a little more personal, a little more subjective to us. Because, you know, obviously something that we like, or that we like at one point in time, at another point someone else doesn't like, or we don't like. So there's definitely a conditioned nature to Vedna. But then once Vedna moves to perception, to that sense of picking something out, naming it, and starting to um, make judgments about it, it becomes very subjective and personal. And then once we start to think about those perceptions, it becomes almost, the process becomes almost inevitable, uncontrollable. We're again on that roller coaster. In preparing for this talk, I read quite a bit in a book by Bhikkhu Nyanananda called Concepts and Reality. It's a book mainly on this um, theme of papancha. And he says in it, as a, as a result of this process of, you know, contact, vedna, perception, thinking, papancha, the one who has been the subject now becomes the hapless object 
the process has started and where we were once involved, our experience sort of was playing into it. We just almost become the victim of these mind states. He goes on to say, like the legendary resurrected tiger, which devoured the magician who restored it to life out of its skeletal bones, the concepts and linguistic conventions overwhelm the worldling, that's us, who evolved them. At the final and crucial stage of sense perception, the concepts are, as it were, invested with an objective character. So what he's saying there is once the papancha starts, we give it, we consider it reality. We give it an, an objective quality. We fail to see the subjective nature of that process. We invest it with this authority, sometimes merely because of the fact that it's there, you know, that it's our experience. We give it that sense of authority, of reality, and we begin to identify with it. And we think that it must be true just because we're thinking it. Have you ever noticed that, how much we think that something is true just because we think it? And we're often not encouraged to investigate our thoughts and our feelings. You know, as I say, they're given a sense of reality, of objectivity. You know, we think that just because we have them, they're valid, they're right, they're true. But the Buddha actually begged to differ. He saw how these mainstream, how the mainstreams of this type of thought usually lead to difficult or unwholesome mind states. He saw that papancha is very connected to and manifests through three main channels, and they'll probably sound quite familiar to you. Tanha, or craving. Mana, or conceit. And that's that sense of comparing, judging, observing. And ditti, or views. And when the Buddha talked about ditti, he often referred to that sense of self, whatever way that was manifesting as, as one of the views that really uh, limit us, restrict us, keep us from freedom. And so papancha can really be seen as something essential to all of the manifestations of those three types of streams of thought that we experience. It actually underlies all of them, comprehends them. It, it's intricately woven in with those three strong states of, of perception. When we're not aware of this proliferating tendency, those states are where we commonly end up. We end up in tanha, craving or aversion. And that's usually associated with uh, the th kind of thought of this is mine, you know, this is mine, I want this, I don't want this, all the different ways that kind of thought manifests or it ends up in comparing and judging, conceit, mana, you know, all of the ways we separate ourselves by what's similar, what's different, even what's the same as, the, the thought, this I am, this is me. The third one is when we end up holding strongly to views and opinions, holding to dogmas, to beliefs, and thinking that, again, that they're right just because we think them, just because we feel them. The sorts of thought that this is myself, this is me. So how do we begin to work with this process of papancha? The simplest advice the Buddha gave was to seclude the senses. And this is what we actually do here on retreat. We create a very simple environment where there's not a lot of stimulation 
And in that quiet, we can begin to see how this process works in our mind. And I'll read uh, what the Buddha's advice was. Again, this, the chapter, the verse that I read last. This is what he said to do. Bhikkhus, as to the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by mental proliferation beset a person, if nothing is found there to delight in, welcome and hold to, this is the end of the underlying tendency to lust, to aversion, to doubt, to conceit, desire for being, to ignorance, the end of resorting to rods and weapons, quarrels, brawls, disputes, recrimination, malice, and false speech. Here, these evil, unwholesome states cease without remainder. So learning to see and work with papancha leads to the end of those unwholesome states. When he says that there is nothing found there to delight in, welcome, and hold on to, he doesn't mean that there should be no joy or delight. What he's referring to is the attachment when he says, and hold on to. That's the key. He's talking about clinging, craving, wanting, uh, aversion, whatever uh, way that may be manifesting. What he's referring to, the, the, te- the, the way we try to find happiness by the material objects of this world that by their very nature, as we've been speaking about, cannot bring us happiness. And what he's talking about leading to is that disenchantment that leads to dispassion that Guy spoke of last night, that in the end leads to liberation. It's when we're able to be with our experience in a very clear and balanced way, open and connected, but not leaning forward, not attached to, not clinging onto, not holding onto. Our best antidote or ally in this practice, in this process, and seeing it clearly is our mindfulness, is our mindfulness practice. Once we become aware of this process, as we start to see it in our experience, reflect on it, and come to know it very clearly, we can begin to work with it skillfully. You know, I'll say again, we can see thoughts and perceptions for what they are. You know, once we paid attention in the quiet of our meditation and seeing thoughts arise and pass away. See how we, when we turn our attention to them, they can dissolve. See that they don't have to dictate our next reaction or experience. We actually can bring a choice to that process. It's really helpful when we're practicing in this way to give a name to the type of thought. So the whole constellation of thought, when we're aware that we're in the midst of papancha, You know, it might be something like going home or, you know, relaxing or work or whatever that big constellation might be, just so we know we're seeing it clearly. And again, with reflection, with understanding, with practice in working with it, it actually becomes easier to be mindful of it. The light bulb goes on a little sooner when we realize we're caught in it. The other morning, uh, while I was sitting, my mind was moving to a difficult family situation, actually one in Australia. Um, And I had this thought about someone in the family that I hadn't had before. And I realized that if I didn't, if I wasn't mindful of that thought, it would lead to a whole chain of judgments and associations about this person that would change my relationship to them. 
even though I didn't know if that first thought was true. And so just in being able to see that, I was able to cut it off and not, as it were, go down that road of, you know, separating from this person and actually giving some validity to this thought that I had about them. I have no idea if knowing this thought or perception I had about them was true. It was interesting because, I, again, I was reflecting on Papancha. It was clear to me the process that was happening. We see how this rush of thoughts creates a sense of self. But when the thoughts are noticed, their power is reduced. The sense of self can be reduced, and there's a greater sense of spaciousness or freedom. The Buddha distinguished between what he called wise and unwise attention. Wise attention he called yoniso manasikara. I actually really like that label. And it's interesting because yoni means womb or womb-like. So it actually means wise attention is an attention that's like a womb, that's safe, that's nurturing. It's actually interesting that he used that as an analogy. When we have a problem, when we have a difficulty in our lives, our usual tendency is to dwell on it, to think about it, to stew in it, you know, to, to go into all the ifs and buts and whys and wherefores and what ifs about the situation, to you know, spin out all of these potential scenarios around it. That is what the Buddha would actually call unwise attention, not helpful attention. The other alternative is to stay present with the situation, with the dilemma, with the problem, in an open and receptive and hopefully mindful way. Unwise attention focuses on the self, this separate sense of self, and the types of thoughts that I mentioned earlier. You know, I am this, will I be, was I ever, you know, who am I in this way, you know, how, how do I look, all of those kinds of things. Wise attention is connected to our present moment experience and is balanced, alert, and mindful, and can provide us with this very fertile ground for insight that's not coming out of thinking or logic or you know, dwelling on, but really a very present and connected way of being with our experience. And so when we begin to see through the fiction of this sense of self, when we see how we create it and how it can be let go of, We also let go of the tendencies to views and opinions that lead to conflict and attachment. When we're caught in papancha, we can try to bring awareness into the body. You know, as soon as we notice, just like with an emotion or some other state of mind, to bring awareness into the body. I've noticed when I, as I've been investigating this, that there are often strong sensations associated with this process. Could be the heart beating a little quicker, for me, it's often a sense of constriction or tightness. And it's, so, it's, it's helpful to become familiar with what that is for you so that, again, the body can provide us a clue that this process is happening. For me, I can always tell when I'm getting into these thoughts of self, there's always a sense of constriction right around my forehead and my eyes. And if I just realize that and then you know, look at what my experience is, It's usually some sense of self that's being created, some sense of me in the future or in the past. That's that's the, the dominant thing in my experience. When we use these interventions, it's really important 
to do them with compassion and kindness and even humor. You know, when we realize that we're caught again and again, to be able to say, oh, that's what this is. It's just papancha, you know, it's just papancha. Here we go again, you know, I know this place. And do it with some lightness. Because we, we start to see how strong this tendency is of the mind, how much there is a force that, that gets us caught. It's understandable that we end up there so often. It's so conditioned. You know, we've done it so many times. It's like that path that we go down that's so familiar. But sometimes the sword of wisdom can come in handy also. And that's the one that says, enough already. You know, shut up. I've heard this before. I've been there before. You know, I know that path. It's not going anywhere. You know, when I think of my ending of retreat fantasies, um, you know, of which I've had many, just to let you know, you know, I would imagine things like, as just probably you're doing, you know, conversations with people that I'll see, things that I like to eat that I haven't been able to have on retreat, um, meals that I might cook, parties that I would throw, you know, all the people that I love that I'll get together. And, you know, it gets very expansive after a while, you know, how many people you'll have and what you'll cook and serve and what they'll say and what you'll wear. And, you know, we can spend hours in this. A really big help for me in cutting through that process was after different retreats, reflecting on whether these streams of papancha had actually ever come true. And I actually had to admit to myself that none of them ever did. (laughs) No conversation ever turned out the way I thought it was going to, or I had planned it. You know, I never threw those big dinner parties. You know, when I got home, I was sort of like, I couldn't be bothered, you know. You know, the, the conflicts that I imagined didn't happen. You know, the, the, the great meetings of, of um, I don't know what, you know, rich, rich uh, stimulating conversations didn't happen. You know, it was really such a, a prick of the balloon to realize I'd spent so much time living in those worlds. <laughs> And they didn't come to pass. And my thinking about them certainly had had no effect on what my experience was when I went back in the world. And I can't say that it's completely undercut that tendency. But more and more, when I see the process going on, I just go, what's the point? You know, it's sort of pleasant in a way, but I really know that it's not leading anywhere. It's not helping me be with my experience. And it's certainly not helping me be with the experience of integration of being back in the world. So the more we understand this process, the more we see that our moods and responses are actually not objective. They're part of a causal chain of events. This tendency to proliferation can be undercut. And it's not to deny the validity of our feelings. You know, our inner life can be very rich, very satisfying, a source of of great joy and connection. But talking about here, offering a different possibility, a different way of relating to those experiences of our inner life, where we don't get so much caught up in them, not so identified with them. And then when we're seeing clearly in that way, perhaps we can choose to cultivate those states, those thoughts, those, those experiences, that lead to more skillful actions, more wholesome mind states, more clarity and kindness and wisdom. And we can see more clearly and perhaps let go of those states, those minds, those thoughts that lead to unskillful actions, that lead to you know, separation, that lead to 
you know, gossip that lead to cruelty, whatever that might be, lead to suffering and conflict. It's really helpful, as well as our meditation practice, to find refuges. I know I spoke about this before, and I think Guy did too, but it's so valuable as a resource for us, whatever they might be. And for me, especially around Papancha, nature is a great resource because there's something about nature, about beauty in any form, that stills the mind. It really takes the mind to a different place, a place of immediacy and contact and clarity. And just, again, by going out and experiencing that, we have that sense of the possibility, as I said earlier, that this running commentary doesn't have to always be there. And a sense of that as our true nature, not the running commentary, not the separation, not the views and opinions, not the thoughts of conflict or aversion. We've been giving quite a few instructions on this retreat, which I love, especially as the end of the retreat is coming. Um, I've, loved, I've loved that we've been having more talks and more instructions on the wholesome states and really knowing them and appreciating them, on cultivating joy and peace and calm. And ha- what a wonderful resource that is for us in our lives. How even then, when we're in the midst of struggle, when, when we're in the midst of difficulty, just knowing that that's possible, knowing that we've really touched that deep place, and it's not separate from us, it's not something we have to go somewhere else to find, but it's here and now, is a wonderful refuge for us. And once we come to appreciate that more and more, once it becomes integrated more and more, that we actually are at home in that place, we become more motivated to cut through the streams of papancha, when they arise, because we know, we see the unsatisfactoriness of that way of being. We see that it separates us, that it actually leads to um, a not being present. It leads, it's it's a reduction of our energy. It takes away from our experience. It's not something that's cultivating wholesome states of mind. And so we become more motivated to be there, to be present, you know, when it happens, to know that this is papancha and this is taking me away from who I really am and from my true home. And we see that it's not inevitable. We start to really appreciate our true home that is a place of connection and clarity and wisdom, compassion and peace. I'd like to finish with the end of this sutta. So what, to give you a little rundown, what actually happened is uh, the Buddha made, uh, said that paragraph that I read earlier, the source, the source through which perceptions and notions tinged by me- mental proliferation beset a person, and then he went away. And the bhikkhus considered this and said, Now, friends, the Blessed One has risen from his seat and gone into his dwelling after giving a summary in brief without expounding the detailed meaning. Now, who will expound this in detail? Then they considered, the Venerable Mahakachana is praised by the teacher and esteemed by his wise companions in the holy life. He is capable of expounding the detailed meaning. Supposing we went to him and asked him the meaning of this. So they went to Venerable Mahakachana. And he said, 
Friends, it is as though a man needing heartwood, seeking heartwood, wandering in search of heartwood, thought that heartwood should be sought for among the branches and leaves of a great tree standing possessed of heartwood after he had passed over the root and the trunk. So what he's saying is, you had the Buddha in front of you, and you didn't ask him, why are you coming to me? You know, the Buddha is the heart when I'm just like the, the leaves, the very thin twigs at the very top of the tree, sort of saying, you're very foolish that you didn't do that. And the, the monks, the bhikkhus had to say, yes, you're right, sir, we should have asked him, we should have asked him. And if he had told us, we would have remembered it. But you, you're here, he's gone, you know, please will you explain to us this teaching? So they say, let the Venerable Mahakachana expound it without finding it troublesome. I actually like this sutta because it seems to have a little bit of humor in it. And so Mahakachana did. He explained it. He went through the whole thing about how uh, the, the, the way that uh, mental proliferation begins, is present, is not present. And the, the bhikkhus were very satisfied with that. And then they finally did go back to the Buddha and they said, this is what Mahakachana said to us. Is that true? And the Buddha said, yes, it is true. Just as he explained it to you, so would I have explained it to you. And the bhikkhus, having delighted and rejoiced in the venerable Mahakachana, oh, no, that's went to the blessed one. He said, yes, that is true. And then when this was said, when the Buddha said that, that what Mahakachana said was true, when this was said, the venerable Ananda said to the blessed one, venerable sir, just as if a man, exhausted by hunger and weakness, came upon a honey bowl, and a honey bowl is a delicious sweet, uh, an Indian sweet. Uh, we might substitute there something like chocolate fudge brownie, or I would anyway. <laughs> In the course of eating it, he would find a sweet, delectable fa flavor. So too, venerable sir, any able-minded bhikkhu, in the course of scrutinizing with wisdom the meaning of this discourse on the Dharma, would find satisfaction and confidence of mind. Venerable Sir, what is the name of this discourse on the Dharma? As to that, the Buddha replies, as to that, Ananda, you may remember this discourse on the Dharma as the honeyball discourse. That is what the Blessed One said. The Venerable Ananda was satisfied and delighted in the Blessed One's words. So the Madhupindika Sutta is the honeyball sutta, the sutta on Papancha. Let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you again for your attention. It's now about 45 minutes for walking until the evening sit. <laughs> 